the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, The Art of Dave Seeley Goes Audio, Orbital Rendezvous Leads to Orphan's Legacy, Motorcycles, Men's Shavers, and the Anderson Bond Connection, plus the complete audio presentation of The Gift of Music by Sharon Lee, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time on the podcast, we have an interview with Bain artist Dave Seeley. Dave is the cover artist on dozens of Bain covers, including Lois McMaster Bujol's Captain Vorpatrel's Alliance, our reissue of Paul Anderson's Flandry novels with those provocative Bond homage covers, John Ringo's Queen of Wands, and much, much more. Also, we have the complete audio presentation of Sharon Lee's short story, The Gift of Music. This is set in Sharon's Archer's Beach world, found in her books Carousel Tides and Carousel Sun. Before we get to that, though, here's the news. So, we have all new free fiction and non-fiction on the Bain.com website. Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey, can you tell us about the fiction? Sure thing. This month we have an excellent story by Bob Butner set in his Orphan's Legacy science fiction adventure universe. The latest entry in that series is Balance Point, which will be out in April. And this story is called Magic and Other Honest Lies, and like all our monthly free fiction, you can find it right there on the Bain.com front page. Yeah, also on the front page is a really cool article by space journalist Terry Burleson. Terry used to be a mission control specialist at NASA, and his discipline was orbital mechanics. Now Terry's put together everything you always wanted to know about how spacecraft rendezvous and mate in outer space. That sounds pretty salacious. You don't know the half of it, but all of you out there will when you check out part one of Rendezvous and Docking, a user's guide for non-rocket scientists. And finally, we also have the conclusion of Tom Crapman's excellent series of articles, Training for War. All that and more on the Bain.com website, Laura. Yep, Bain.com. So go there and experience good reading. We're joined by Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf today, and we want to welcome artist Dave Seeley to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Dave Seeley. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. <laughs> Dave Seeley's work can be seen on dozens of Bain books, uh, maybe dozens of dozens, from the cover of Lois McMaster Bujold's um, Captain Vorpatrel's Alliance to Frank Chadwick's How Dark the World Becomes to the fantastic reimagining of Edgar Rice Burroughs' icons from our World of Edgar Rice Burroughs anthology uh, to John Ringo's Queen of Wands. Dave's work has brought many a story to life and convinced many a reader to try the book to begin with. Dave was born in Boston. If, if any of this is wrong, Dave, correct me. <laughs> Dave was born in Boston and grew up, I believe, in Andover, Massachusetts. He was good at math and science as a kid and went down to Rice University in Houston to study architecture and fine arts. All that time, he was an avid collector of comics and fantasy art. 
He went on to become an architect and then undertook an amazing mid-career turn and morphed into an award-winning illustrator and cover artist. Dave returned to Boston, where he now lives a very urban life with his wife and son. So, Dave, uh, you said before that you're a materials fetishist. Can we start with that? What do you mean by that? Uh, um, uh, you know, a sort of a, a fetishistic fascination with, um, uh, you know, material makeup detail, which, which which sort of comes from architecture. Well, chicken or the egg, I don't know which is first, but, you know, loving things like rusty metal and peeling paint and burnished wood and uh, patinaed copper and, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of um, love of materials, how they go together, how you fit them together, how you uh, sort of detail a physical object and then um, have those material qualities come through. So I'm, I'm certainly aware of that kind of... Um, kind of uh, uh, textural thing coming through to images, and then images, for me, become objects in and of themselves. I, I wasn't aware that I was a materials fetishist, but the way you describe it, apparently I am, yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> do, you, uh, do you collect material as well as uh, art to, to go off of, to use as uh, examples for stuff? You have like a bunch of rusty bolts lying around. That <laughs> In fact, absolutely, I do. I have all these junk bits of rusty metal and and uh, uh, stuff that I find embedded in the street, walking around that I pick up and take home and have laying around my studio. So that's definitely there. And when I was working on construction sites, I would I would bring interesting, beautiful objects home. <laughs> MIT actually has this beautiful. On the third Sunday of every month between April and October, and occasionally they would have, as a part of this big sort of computer radio swap fest, they would have a, a semi-tractor trailer truck come in and sell stuff for like pennies on the pound that clearly was made um, as part of you know multi-million-dollar government contracts and labs. So there's all these little bits of beautiful machined aluminum that suddenly have no use, but they're just gorgeous things. Oh, so so in terms of actual objects laying around, yes, I have them. I've actually shot photographs of them and used them in, in pictures. And then I'm constantly photographing everything that I come across that, that's a potential um, material to be used in a, a photographic collage. I, I've got a, a, a really nice rusty pole arm. It's, it, it's a replica that I, that, that I should send to you because it, it's got... Uh... Send it up. Send it on up. Yeah, absolutely. You said in an interview that you were really fascinated by modern motorcycle design. I wanted to ask you about that. Maybe that was a while back. But... <laughs> yeah, but it still holds true. I mean, essentially that, that point was about industrial design and Many, many objects in industrial design have um, a kind of sameness in the paradigm in the way that the designer is thinking about that, and that inherently has a, it lends kind of a cohesive look. So it's about, it's about the way you make shape. And I, the, what I said about motorcycles in the past is that motorcycles tended to push the envelope on um, what, are, what are manufacturing processes can can make in terms of shape. 
Um, curiously, you know, because those forms are inherently aerodynamic, probably more aerodynamic than they actually need to be for for their function. I mean, obviously, if a giant Harley is an is a acceptable shape and a cafe racer is a, is an acceptable shape, those are pretty different things. So there's an aesthetic that comes to play as well. But motorcycles, because of the fiberglass construction and, um, you know, modern um, processes tended to be pretty inspirational. I also love, like, fighter jet planes, things that are aerodynamic. Interestingly, disposable razors mm. all look like they're going about 80 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I don't know why that is, but for some reason, somebody decided that disposable razors, if they're going to sell the guys, need to look sort of science fiction and aerodynamic. Well, I, I think otherwise it's a commodity, so you have to sell it on the way that it looks. Um, so, yeah. It makes yeah. us feel like we're, uh, we're top guns. When That's we're right. Taking those, those whiskers off. One other thing I might want to ask you about is, uh, is the fact that you are also a collector, which not every artist is. Um, yeah, and you know, maybe I was getting, st- not that architects make a lot of money, but maybe I got started before I became a, an artist, and artists typically are poor, <laughs> so they, they can't afford artwork, but a, a lot of artists actually swap artwork, so that's one way to, to collect if you want to collect, and I also tend to buy a bunch of little paintings, and there are opportunities to do that at conventions, and then um, there's a couple of charity auctions that tend to happen annually that are little paintings that are pretty beautiful. Right now I'm enamored with uh, Julie Bell's son, Dave Palumbo, does these little beautiful nudes called, um, he calls them postcard nudes, and a lot of them are, are like, uh, you know, five by seven inches, pretty small. Um, so they tend to be couple hundred bucks is what he was selling them for, but he keeps winning Spectrum medals, so my guess is that soon I'm not going to be able to afford those either. <laughs> but beautiful, just beautiful little paintings. Microvisions is uh, an auction that's run by the Society of Illustrators in New York for um, their student scholarship, and they ask artists to do paintings. I did one a couple of years ago for that, but I tend to troll that... Um, that auction and have bought a whole bunch of pieces by people that I really like. So artists out there, you might can impress Dave Seeley and yeah. end up in his collection. And, you know, I also tend to, it's like I have a couple of Phil Hales that I couldn't begin to afford at this point because early on he was a buddy and, you know, gave me ridiculously good prices. <laughs> I'm still kicking myself for not buying one that then went on to win a Spectrum medal and, he uh, sold to somebody else before we could make up our mind. <laughs> so when I think of a Sealy cover, I think of intricacy and maybe almost OCD attention to detail at times. But there's also a lot of drama going on. We're in spaces where stuff's happening. Um, the completeness and sense of realism must come from your architectural background, I'm guessing. What about the drama? Um, does that come from your childhood? Did you want to be a painter or illustrator before you wanted to be uh, an architect? You know, the, the sort of the background is that I've been um, drawing or doing artwork, paintings for as long as I can remember. And I used to, you know, I, I have memories of sitting in grade school at recess uh, with a giant drawing pad of, of monsters that I would draw with colored pencils and have kids sort of sitting around going, whoa, cool. 
Um, so the, the art goes back to day one, and then I had an interest in math science that was that was um, pretty serious up through high school, and I sort of mentally put the math science together with artwork and thought architecture. And at that point, you know, art was something that was done in my mind, in my paradigm in high school in an upper middle class town, the, the notion was that art gets done by the, the kids who are out back smoking joints <laughs> and that if you were a student, um, you, didn't, you didn't do art. And it wasn't until I got into college and art history in, in earnest that I realized that some of the most brilliant minds in history became the artists. So in a way, I... That, that was kind of backwards. And at that point in architecture, I, I double, majored, double majored in architecture and fine art at Rice. And um, I, uh, I practiced architecture and, and, and certainly loved and fell in love with architecture when I discovered finally what it was. And it, and it wasn't really as kind of slam dunk as art meets math science. It was um, all about uh, spatial ideas and um, a, a sort of an intellectual dialogue, but it took me a couple of years to figure that out. And when I figured it out, I, I liked it enough to want to go do it um, and did do it for about 12 years. And it was probably only after some frustrations in, uh, in, a, in a career for about a dozen years where I um, had, was, was being a fanboy alongside of it um, it, it coincided with a job that sort of took a bad turn because we had an awful contract and a client who kept saying, do it over, do it over, do it over, and they could because of our contract. And at the same time, um, I won a, a traveling fellowship in architecture and went around the world with my wife on a traveling fellowship. We got pregnant, and um, at that point I decided that I wanted to spend uh, more time as an active parent than I could as a full-time architect, and maybe it was time to give this art itch some scratch. So that's kind of what kicked it off. Yeah. So, so the coming of your, um, your is it a son or a, yeah, a son. The coming of your son sort of uh, was a turning point for your art. point for me jumping jumping into making genre art mm. um, and it, it was kind of fun because I, I started doing Star Wars imagery at the same time that he was coming of age to actually get involved in it so I, I got to sort of relive the Star Wars thing through him you and um, it kind of kind of worked out well you've done a ton of Star Wars covers haven't you I I've, I've done probably more Bane picks than I've done Star Wars picks that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> so tell us, there's a fascinating documentary out there that, that sort of goes through your process. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you create a uh, cover art and um, an idea of, of, is it different for Bain than other, other clients? I, I think you, you, you're probably talking about there's a documentary film by Michael McDonald's Roadhouse Films, and it's probably six, seven years old at this point. But it it's uh, still very similar to the way that I work now, where I'm collaging together bits of photography. And um, the difference is being, at this point, probably, um, I, I actually,
actually shoot. I, I sort of upped my game for photography a couple of years ago and and started collecting heavy duty pro equipment and learning about strobe lighting and uh, got involved with a, a site called Model Mayhem, which is kind of a Facebook for artists and photographers, and began hiring and shooting models. And I, prior to that, I'd, I'd been doing a lot more Frankensteining, although. <laughs> that said, Frankenstein, meaning taking pu- pulling images from stock photography. Um, there's a great series of sites out of Prague. Um, the main site being a site called uh, 3D.sk.com, which um, shoots uh, nude models on a giant lazy Susan in one pose and turns it around and gets 16 different angles. And I was using a lot of their stuff and um, Frankensteining bits together. But I got to tell you that like I'm, I'm doing a job right now where it's from my own shoot and um, the torso and head is from one shot and each one of the limbs is from a different shot now. So maybe I can't get away from the Frankenstein even though I'm shooting. <laughs> so a lot more, a, a lot more shooting of my own photography and um, I've also become much more adept at 3D model building. So I'll be. 3D 3D models have been making more of an appearance in my picks in the last oh three four years. What do you mean by that? 3D model building. Oh, 3D model building is using uh, software to build things um, in three dimensions, and then uh, sort of if you're building a 3D model, you can rotate it around in space, figure out how you want to light it, and then render it. But it's all virtual in a computer as opposed to uh, building an actual model out of, you know, scratch bits and pieces, which is something I used to like to do a lot more of. I I was going to ask you about the alien in uh, the uh, Chaplain's War, because it's really creepy. (laughs) (laughs) The alien in Chaplain's War is all 2D, but it's it's again bashing photography together, and I think I used. Oh boy, what did I use in that? Um, Whatever it is, I, I want it not to be alive. You know, the, the sort of metal <laughs> disc, which was brought alive in a, in a pretty pretty nice text description. Um, I'm going to pull that up and look at it. So, yeah, the metal disc. I think was uh, a chunk of a an airplane fuselage that I shot, and then I think the major uh, like the the legs are like Alaskan mm. king crab legs from a giant <laughs> Alaskan king crab that I shot in a, a museum of natural history, and then probably uh, I, I see bits of um, undersea stuff shot at an aquarium. And uh, there's some machinery in there. So, you know, it's sort of a giant amalgam of um, photography bits and pieces. But something that I, that, that I had in my mind bec- as I sort of saw the movie play out while reading Brad's text. Yeah, this is uh, The Chaplain's War by Brad Torgerson. Which will be out next uh, fall. Yeah, mm-hmm. I believe it's a, a January 2015 book, maybe, yeah. or December. So, um, so what's when does it come together for you when you when it really starts to gel? Is it in, in your mind? Is there a point in the process? Um, you know, interestingly, I think that probably 
two-thirds of it is is more of a kind of a frustrating exercise and shoving bits around and changing um, lighting and value and until it, until suddenly it, it does begin to gel as an image, but it can be days. And I always forget, you know, when the next one comes along, I, I always forget that those days can be kind of nerve-wracking and frustrating. And then suddenly when it gels, it can actually do that in a couple hours. And then I really feel like, wow, that was a good day. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and forget about the ones that were, were uh, sort of long, a longer slog. And then, you know, when, I, when I'm final, finally polishing up the piece, whether it's uh, in digital paint or in real paint, that's, that's definitely the payoff. It sort of feels like, you know, yeah, that's where I want it to be. So you still paint over some of your images? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm always sort of finishing it some way, whether it's a, a light computer filter, whether it's going back in and curl painter and pushing it around to make it look a little bit more painterly or actually printing it out and using oil paint to make it look more painterly. So, you know, I'm, I'm always, t typically my process lets me work it up photographically, and some clients of mine essentially are looking for um, sort of the perfect photograph, the perfect impossible photograph, <laughs> and some clients want a more painterly look. In publishing, typically I'm shooting for a more painterly look mostly because that's publishing's history. You know, we're, we're used to seeing paintings on books, and I love paintings, don't get me wrong. It's sort of a great, it's a great way to, a great excuse for me to get back in and, and push oil paint around and play with those lovely toxic materials. <laughs> what is, um, well, I was going to ask Tony earlier, I forgot, um, but now I can ask you. Uh, what, what's your favorite Sealy cover, do you think, of... Well, I, I the, the, there are lots of uh, different moods. Um, the uh, I guess for me the top two are uh, the cover for uh, Captain uh, Farkosigan's Alliance, which is uh, it, it's a rap cover, so it's really two images that uh, that they've put together. Um, there's just a beautiful um, image of uh, the city that Lois describes, um, Sultana Borbara, uh, that Dave really just brought into focus for me. I mean, I, I'd been living in that city for 20 years, on and off, as Lois wrote novels, and it was just great to um, to have just a firm picture in my head. And it was also just a gorgeous painting. Um, Lois was very worried that the, that the blue dancing woman, um, who is... Uh, in a, a character in the book. She's not a main character, she's a supporting character. But she knew, and was absolutely right, that no science fiction artist worth his uh, pay would be able to resist painting her. Um, so I told Dave not to resist, to just go ahead and do it. Um, so we had the, the cover art with the beautiful blue dancing lady, um, but also just a fantastic portrait of Ivan. And um, so uh, we've, 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 we've flipped the images and used, used both on, as front covers and both as back covers, and they, uh, they're, they're just a delight. Um, and in a completely different mood is uh, the newer one, The, uh, the Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs, where Dave's uh, version of John Carter of Mars is just fantastic, and his Tarzan is amazing. So to have both of those in one painting just really, I, f I feel like as an art director, I have earned my, I've earned my keep there. So. <laughs>
Well, I would I would point out we also have that cover uh, blown up on a giant piece of canvas, and it uh, adorns the office here. Oh yeah. <laughs> Dave, what is um? What do you think your favorite cover to work on for Bain has been? Um, you know, um, the 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 Warbur Trails Alliance one that Tony talks about was was a fun one, but substantially different because, you know, you, t you talked earlier about showing a lot of drama, and the reality is that that particular story was kind of this zany Cary Grant romance thing set, set, set in the science fiction world that Lois had created. And, um, and so it's sort of fun every now and then to get uh, – something that's substantially different and think about how to approach it. And that's, that's how particularly the portrait of Ivan, uh, uh, Tej and, and Wish mm -hmm. came about. So that was kind of fun. And, um, even, even the front cover for that, which is this beautiful cityscape is, you know, a, a couple bombing by in a sports car. So more, more kind of playful than, um, than drama. And, and, you know, the, the chance to do the, the other one that she talked about, which was the, the Burroughs book, I mean, it's like both of those images are, a, are an illustrator's dream come true, and here they are in the front and back of the same book. So that was, that was pretty much a grand slam. I, I should say that my role, my, favorite. my role as art director on that piece was saying, Dave, go do this. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I have to say that my relationship with Tony Often it's that way where I think that the reason that our relationship works so well is probably because our heads are coming from similar places. So it's, it seems like the relationship has been absolutely painless, and it's at the risk of sounding like one of those uh, special features at the end of a, or on the special features of the DVD where the actor is gushing about the director. <laughs> um, I, I, I think because we, you know, I typically I'll, I'll read a book or react to something and say, I'm thinking sort of like this. And Tony's often, often will come back with, yeah, that sounds great, but make sure you bear this in mind. You know, it's, so it's, it's been, um, it's been a nice track record. One of my favorite pieces is actually one we did for, um, a book that Tony co-edited with Mark Van Name mm. called Transhuman, which was uh, a series of, Stories about the uh, the fruition of the art artificial intelligence turning around and making contact with us, um, and in that particular one, it was it was it was a great opportunity because it was a series of short stories, and the, and the cover needed to be more editorial about artificial intelligence and man making contact, so it wasn't. It wasn't a narrative thing. It was more um, an, an image about the notion of that, and it was a great opportunity for me to actually use the digital and the oil paint and use the oil paint to, to be earthly things and the digital to be the artificial intelligence part and have them meeting in the painting. So in a way, that was particularly satisfying for me to do. Yeah, it, it worked really well. We were just we were just talking about that uh, yesterday. In fact, what a what a striking image it was, and I I think uh, Mark bought the art for that, didn't he? It's, it's a 
always lovely to get a note from the author who's particularly thrilled with this cover. Um, typically, the in the industry, you're, the artist and the author are are um, sort of negotiated between the publisher, and so you don't really have a sense of how how the uh, the author likes this piece. In fact. You know, I'm sure Tony can speak at length about this, but I think that, that there's kind of a notion that that writers would shoot themselves in the foot if they could direct their own imagery. So, um, so that's just sort of the way it is. But it's it's always uh, tickling when you get a when you get a note that somebody just loves their their cover. I, I think it's the way that uh, that that artistic brains work. Um, I, I, I think uh, that writers see things with words, and artists see things uh, with images. And if 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 an author tries to cross over, it very often doesn't work. And and the reason and we've seen this. I mean, we it's it's not just a myth. It it really is true that 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 the artist brings a lot to the table. Um, and so, so giving the, giving the artist, um, the final veto, uh, well, I guess the publisher has the final veto, but it, at least making sure that the artist's ideas, um, get a, uh, a full hearing, uh, on the cover is important. And, you know, I think that there's all kinds of different minds and, and my mind, anyway, when I read a book, and I'm a, and I'm a painfully slow reader, and I don't doubt that it's related. But when I'm reading a book, I actually see the movie. So it's very, it's typically a very visual experience. My my wife, who is an English major and a lawyer, can devour a book in probably a tenth of the time that it would take me to read it. But when I start asking her questions about, you know, what did that character look like, or or sort of describe the environment. She doesn't have a clue. Hmm. So it, that was sort of shocking for me to actually realize that everybody doesn't see a movie when they read a book. So it, it, it's also surprising to me that when I come up with an image that the author themselves also is kind of surprised to actually see the world that they created. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Speaking as an author, it's, I would never try to tell anybody. I, I'm amazed by what artists come up with for covers of, of my my books, and um, it's nothing that I conceived of, and yet it's better than everything that I conceived of visually. And, and, and I think that's why why paintings um, are, are never going to go away in science fiction, because that interaction between the, the, the author's vision and the artist's vision is just so fascinating and so much fun um, that, it's, that, that it's a necessary part of the process. Well, Dave, one of my one of my all time favorite covers is your cover for John Ringo's Queen of Wands. Um, you've you created some amazing evocative covers for Bane. We talked about the Edgar Rice Burroughs cover, um, and I might say some amazingly provocative ones as well. Um, when you do your characters, you don't mind making them gorgeous human beings. Uh, is there a reason behind that other than perhaps why not make people as pleasing to the eye as possible? Um, you know, I, I thought about that when you when you sent it on the outline as a as a possible question, and you know, for me, I I think that most of where I'm coming from in wanting to make um, genre art is I've, I've been sort of very influenced by movie making probably more than than science fiction art from the 50s, 60s, 70s. So 
You know, inherently, when I'm seeing this movie, I'm casting figures as well. In fact, uh, I remember when we How Duck the World Becomes, I, um, I read the book and I came back to Tony and said, you know, in my mind, I was seeing the, the uh, Jason Stratham. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, yeah, he works for me. So <laughs> definitely I went off um, and found myself a model who had qualities that Jason Stratham had and used him as the um, as the lead. And so, you know, I, I sort of feel like it's fantasy where, where we, we're picking up a book, we're wrapped up in the story. The book jacket's primary job is to get somebody to pick it up and begin to become engaged. And then it's the writer's job to make sure that they stay engaged after the first couple of pages. Um, so I, I suppose that I, I want to be looking at beautiful people. Um, you know, that said, uh, for instance, uh, Donato Giancola was an artist buddy of mine, and he will um, very consciously paint not particularly good-looking people in certain scenarios because he wants it to end, to sort of lend a, a realism to the piece. And I like that, too. Like when we did the uh, the Van Rin method, for instance, mm-hmm. there's, there's a scenario where Leo Van Rin is the is the guy who's sort of pulling out all the the, the sort of brilliant mind moves to keep everything flowing along, and he's even contrasted against a kind of archetypal hero that's caught up in the drama of being a hero. So in that particular case, it made sense to actually contrast them on the cover, but it but certainly the two other characters in the cover are beautiful people. Um, when it comes to John Carter of Mars, you're, you're looking at somebody who's described in the, I mean, the, the, the princess of Mars is described as the most beautiful woman ever. So in a way, you know, not only does she need to be beautiful by definition, but it's, it's also kind of revealing that, that, that's my interpretation of what beautiful is. <laughs> I, my, my, I have another art friend, Phil Hale, who didn't paint women for years because he felt like if he painted a woman, it was too revealing about himself. And maybe I'm just more of an exhibitionist. <laughs> you like them with swords in their hands? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Flandry series was a complete homage to Robert McGinnis's covers for James Bond in the 60s, 70s, and, and, and Paul Anderson had written Flandry before um, Ian Fleming wrote James Bond. So it was a great, and, and I, I was totally enamored with uh, McGinnis's work. And so when Tony came in with that series, um, I made, I, I don't know whether she or I made the connection to the James Bond-like character, and it was a light bulb went off, and it was a chance to do those jackets. So, you know, all, all the glam of James Bond and the Bond girls coming back through in those pieces. Yeah, those are the, these are the Paul Anderson uh, Flandry series books. Uh, those covers are, are just wonderful, uh, in our opinion. I, I, I think that there, there's, there's, there's a certain uh, chord that runs through uh, all Bane books. Uh, they're, you know, they're very different, different subgenres, different authors, different approaches. But uh, all Bane authors can draw good guys and they can draw bad guys. And, and this is a surprisingly difficult 
thing to find in writers. And I think the same may be true uh, in Bain artists, is that all Bain artists can draw a beautiful person and they can draw they can draw ugly people too and that that understanding what what the difference is is it seems obvious but it but it isn't necessarily um and uh it's a skill that is certainly appreciated by our readers speaking of uh of your influences on the flandry covers tell us about some of your artistic influences uh, you've said caravaggio which is is pretty clear that's a, a big influence. Um, and John Singer Sargent, you always mention in interviews. Yeah, I, both of those. I mean, both of those artists, I think, were were renowned for their light and shadow balance, um, and creating this sort of beautifully rendered uh, characters. They're they're also um, both renowned for their brushwork. Caravaggio at the time was. I think I think there was a whole school of artists that followed Caravaggio called uh, Caravaggiesque or something where they were essentially imitators of Caravaggio after the fact. And he had sort of a relatively short and tortured life and then was um, emulated for a long time. And, and Sar- Sargent was uh, considered a, uh, a great master while he was even in the end of his career, which is, which is early for many. So, I mean, both of those guys, I could look at their stuff for hours. It's just, uh, you know, beautiful, the handling of figures, light shadow. Isn't uh, Sargent a fellow Bostonian? He was, although he was traveling all over the place, too, and belonged to a a time and a, and a class system that I it's hard for me to imagine. But, but hey, we get what we get, and I did all right. Yeah. <laughs> In the present day, you're part of a sort of online artist collective or studio group. Um, it sounds extremely cool, considering some of the artists who are part of it. Can you tell us about that, who's involved, and how, how it works? You know, it, it's def- definitely that's an offshoot, offshoot of the, the connectivity that the Internet brought to us. So, you know, tip- traditionally my, you know, the, 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 the world of a, of an illustrator is somebody who sits home alone all the time in their studio, and um, it was kind of a solitary existence. Especially, I came I came out of working in architecture firms in an office, so the contrast was pretty jarring when I initially started. But then the internet was firing up, and you start to connect to people that you relate to in terms of um, the work that you're doing, and then start to share images back and forth as we began to be able to send send images back and forth. And now we, and, and for years and years now, have had um, kind of a virtual studio with a few or many, um, and I think I've been in three different ones. One of them just got huge immediately and became somewhat useless. But the reason that it became somewhat useless was because um, some large percentage of the people there didn't want to really get down to the nitty-gritty of criticism. They were much more looking for kind of, um, you know, pats on the back mm-hmm. and, yeah, cool, great, which I find to be of pretty limited value. So these, the, so, it uh, operates like a workshop is what you're describing, what you like. Constantly throwing, you know, series of sketches in front of each other and work in progress and asking for feedback and 
artists will grab the high-res JPEG and, and paint all over it in Photoshop and, and uh, kick it back to the group. People will react to that. So it's, I, I certainly feel that it's been uh, enormously important for my own growth trajectory as an artist. And I can see uh, growth in others in the group. And it's a, I'm currently in a, in a pretty spectacular group. Um, Donato, Stefan Martinier, uh, Todd Lockwood, Lars Grant West, Cyril Vanderhagen, Greg Manchess, Dan DeSantis, Sam Burley, Doug Alexander Gregory, who's uh, an art director but a, an incredible artist in his own right. Julie Bell is a pretty much a legend. Scott Fisher is awesome. Bruce Jensen and um, art director Irene Gallo. So I think it's a total 14 at the moment. That and is an amazing it's group. It's a great group. And not only that, but we, we sort of share our personal lives to some extent, too. So it's just a group that you feel really close to. And then when you come to a convention or go down to New York for a show, um, I, I see these people socially all the time, too. Well, can you give us some advice for, uh, for young artists? Should they start with day jobs like you? <laughs> or um, how, how would you say to, to go about um, becoming... Uh, the kind of artist you are, or just an artist in general? I mean, to become an artist in our in our genre, in our world, uh, it's it's probably different than than the fine art gallery artists. So, I'll, in terms of creating um, il- illustrations for publication or for whatever, um, I was also I was a lateral coming in from architecture, uh, and it's, at the time that I was a lateral, I sort of thought that I could. Um, lateral in and sort of not put in my 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 requisite time before success, but that turned out to be horribly wrong. Part of the reason that many artists survive is that they they actually have a good healthy ignorance about a lot of it. So I have to be careful not to dispel that in young in young artists. They they need that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, so there's an artistic. I mean, because I've often said when I'm teaching writing that. You either have to go to war or else write a million words before you can, you're any good at anything. Is there sort of an equivalent in, in making art? You know, there's a great, there's, again, there's a bunch of great online resources. Uh, there's a thing called the Art Department, which is all about um, sharing and posting art and getting feedback from peers, uh, established professionals and kids. There's a great series of, uh, there's a great blog called Muddy Colors that I think was put together by Dan DeSantos. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an incredible post in that by uh, Chris Muller, is a, a renowned um, comics artist, and he did a great post on Muddy Colors about the required five years that you really need to get established and that you might think you're going to do it in less than five years, but it's going to be five years. <laughs> it's pretty, you know, everybody reads it and kind of shakes their head. That uh, won't be me, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the most important thing is to keep getting better. So a lot, of, a lot of it is sort of sharing your work and getting honest criticism back from peers, wherever you are in your process, and try to get that feedback from more established professionals in the in the windows, the short windows that you have to get that, constantly be submitting your work to Spectrum and Exposé, because those will be springboards to more work if you get into Spectrum and Exposé. And it's even for established professionals. I got to tell you, it's a crapshoot. What is Spectrum and Exposé? Those are are juried annuals, so they're they're actually. 
to use them as source books to find new artists. Yes, so we do. So it's a great way to be yeah. seen, um, you know, to sort of keep going ahead and, and uh, submitting and don't get discouraged because it's like I had a, a couple of years ago, I didn't get in myself and I submit 15 or 20 images a year. So a lot of it depends on the jury and uh, oddly, I, I submitted a piece I, I, I had a two-year window to submit because um, a piece was published as hardback and then a soft softback. I submitted a piece to both of those books, and they didn't get in the book. And then the next year, not only did they both get in both books, but Exposé gave the piece their gold medal in science fiction. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. <laughs> right? Pretty cool. Um, so what projects are you working on for Bain right now? Or do you want to pitch something to Tony? <laughs> I, I might have to. I'm, I'm between projects with you guys at this point. We, Mar Marla and I are about to uh, set the next season, and we will be calling you. <laughs> there you go. Well, we've been talking to Bain cover artist extraordinaire Dave Seeley. His work can be seen on dozens of Bain books in, and in Spectrum and Exposé. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks a bunch. It's been great, great chatting. Now here's a short story set in the Archer Speech contemporary fantasy universe of Sharon Lee. This is the setting for Sharon's novels, Carousel Tides and Carousel Sun, as well as the story you are about to hear. The Gift of Music by Sharon Lee Early September the air crisping up and the sea getting feisty. Fall was bearing down on Archer's Beach and all the rest of Maine, too, the way Andy heard it, but you'd never tell it from the number of folks on the streets and filling up all the hotels. Folk that had come up from away down Boston and Montreal, Vermont and New Hampshire, places Andy'd only heard about, him being Archer's Beach, all the way through. He stood on the pier, arms folded on the rail, guitar in its case nestled like a dog at his feet. Standing right there, he could look down and see the breakers strike the white beach and splinter into ivory foam. Turning his head just a little, and he could see straight up Archer Avenue, all busy with automobiles and horse-drawn wagons, pedestrians, and the electric trolley just making the turn down from Portland Street. Well, Andy thought, squinting up the hill against the September sun, It'd be winter soon enough, and the town hunkered down against the cold. Half the hotels would be closed by All Hallows, and the rest by Thanksgiving Day. Then it'd be the townies keeping their own company till April brought the owners back from their winter places in Portland or Boston. May and April, those were the working months, repairing what the winter'd broke, cleaning up, and repainting till the town was fit for company again. He straightened away from the rail and stretched before reaching down to take the guitar in hand. Truth told, a crowd in town suited him fine. It was always better to play for something other than himself. It was nice to get paid, too, though. Another truth told, even at the height of summer there wasn't a lot of work for Andy LaPierre. The ballroom and the concert halls paid best but they wanted the big bands and the big acts up from New York and Atlantic City. A fellow like Andy, single fellow with a guitar, not much call for him. Less even than a call for a duo, guitar and fiddle, like him and Cray tried doing. Damn fool thing that had been. 
That fiddle was dangerous, which they'd both known. Their mistake was in thinking they could handle it, which made them a pair of damn fools. Fiddled almost killed a boy, dancing at Fathom Five. Well, no, him and Craig, they'd almost killed the boy, it being them that had brought the fiddle into it, knowing what it was. And, full truth told, if the boy had died, it would have been Andy's death. He was older, and he should have been watching. He'd told Cray that he'd be watching. But the fiddle, well, say the fiddle had its own ideas. In the end, Andy had come to himself in time, and no lasting harm was done. The boy'd wanted a bracer and a friendly arm to lean on back to his hotel. A couple of Cray's fingers got burnt, but that wasn't worth mentioning though Cray still did, now and then, being Cray. Could have been worse. It did put it into the duo, though. No real loss. Cray didn't need the music, not like Andy did, and he was happy enough to go back to the marshland and tend his own potatoes. So that left Andy, a fella and his guitar, playing fill-in, side, and early at the little places and the speakeasies. Fathom Five, the Pearl and Coral, the Sea Nymph, the conch, those were his usual venues. Once or twice a summer he'd pick up a gig at one of the big hotel restaurants, wandering from table to table, playing soft, maybe crooning a little. That was fine, and the tips were good, but the big hotels didn't want the likes of Andy, not regular. That was all right. It was the music that was important, more important than money, more important than love. Learning that, that had been a shocker. But the music, it wanted, it needed to be played. It wouldn't let itself be put away to fester. The music, that was his gift, and it wasn't going to let him waste a single note of it. So Andy played where they'd have him, for the hat and supper, sharing his gift, and, just by the way, healing himself. Tonight, for instance, he was playing the conch, seven to ten, which was longer than usual, but the sax player's wife had sent a note that he was under the weather, meaning that he'd drunk too much coffin varnish again. The word came to Andy's ear about the time it reached Mr. Flanagan, the conch's barkeep and manager. That meant he was walking in the door, having given the doorman the word, guitar in hand, smoked glasses covering his eyes, before Flanagan had time to send round to any of the other regulars. The barkeep didn't necessarily like Andy, which was mutual, but he wasn't a man who relished putting in extra effort, either. Mr. Flanagan didn't like music, and he didn't like musicians, and one was as good as another to him. Spying Andy, he gave a short nod and turned to draw a beer. "'You're playing straight through tonight,' he said. "'Yes, sir,' said Andy, nice and polite. He took the beer and went down to the little stage to set up. He could feel the music buzzing at the ends of his fingers and in between his ears. He just played two days ago, but the music was eager, like there was something special brewing. He thought about that, tuning up. Something special, was it? Well, if that was the case, then it had to be the night was somehow special, because it sure wasn't the gig. The conch wasn't one of your upscale places, like the sea change or the casino, but it wasn't just a towny joint, either. Flanagan didn't like townies any more than he liked music or musicians. About the only thing he did like was that money from away. That being so, the conch made itself agreeable to those folks from away who had money, but who didn't necessarily expect the digs to be top-notch. That meant it drew a younger crowd, a tougher crowd. 
Sometimes things happened at the comp that shouldn't have. Flanagan paid a nice percentage of that away money to the cops to make sure those things never came to their official notice. Andy didn't mind the crowd. Trouble never came to him that way, and hardly ever came to the conk when he was playing. The only thing that mattered was that he got to play. Mostly, too, he played for himself. The crowd had their own business, and the sounds he made were background, or less, to them. That was all right, too. The music did its work. It didn't have to be heard. It only had to be played. He noticed them about halfway through his second set, a couple like any other from away who owned the kind of money that would make Flanagan's nose twitch. She was pretty, he thought, kind of skinny in a short dress and long beads, a bell-shaped hat cocked over one ear and a big red flower pinned to it. He didn't necessarily incline towards skinny girls, but this one had great sparkling eyes and a wonder smile on her painted mouth. She was hearing the music, no doubt there, hearing it and wanting to hear more. She made for the empty table to the right of the stage. Her fella followed, but it was plain he wasn't best pleased, jerking his head toward the back of the room where there was an arm in the air. Bigger in her, naturally, burly and thick-muscled in a tailored suit. His hair was glossy with brilliantine, slicked back from a square, hard face. He had a little black mustache over a full red mouth, and his hands were square and soft. He jerked his head again toward the back of the room. The girl pouted. Her fella pulled her chair out with ill grace and went to the back of the room alone. Andy forgot about her for a while then, lost in the music himself. The next time he noticed her was during his supper break. Her fella had come back to her table and was apparently wanting to move on. The girl shook her head, and he grabbed her wrist, jerking her to her feet. Andy came away from the bar fast, meaning to have a word with the boy, but she looked right at him, met his eyes like she could see them behind the dark lenses, and shook her head. He nodded slightly and went back to his supper, watching as her fella pulled her arm through his and they moved toward the door. It seemed she went willing, and her fella stayed civilized till they were out of his sight, gone into the breezy September night. Andy sighed, still feeling unsettled, which was just foolishness. He didn't have nothing to do with people from away. Nothing to do at all. He amused himself with a run of old ballads. Low Bridge, Old Dan Tucker, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Nobody noticed. Nobody ever did. He played till it was time to stop playing, got the guitar into its case, and drank a last beer while Flanagan counted out the hat. Two dollars and eighty-five cents, more than he'd expected from this crowd. He left fifty cents on the bar so Mr. Flanagan wouldn't find him to be lacking in gratitude, stowed the rest in his pockets, and strolled down the noisy, crowded room. The guy on the door opened up for him, he nodded his thanks and followed the smoke out into the sweet autumn air. He walked down the hill among the glare of the electric lights. Despite the hour, the streets were crowded, the light spilling from the new hotels making the street as bright as day. Down at the bottom of the hill was the pier, hung with so many lights it looked like a sun had fallen into the sea. 
Andy could hear the band playing at the casino. Paul Whiteman's orchestra it was this weekend. Nice and clear. He ambled along, in no rush to be anywhere, guitar case over his shoulder, weighing whether he wanted to go over to the casino and take in what was left of the show. Might learn something. Or might not. He didn't much care for the big band sound, and while some of the arrangements might be adapted for a single fella and his guitar, most were built for that full orchestra. Be a lot more to learn at the jam session, after the pier closed down for the night and honest folk were asleep. That was when the roadies, and some of the orchestra musicians too, the ones who lived the music almost like Andy did, they'd get together to play. Blues. Now there was something a fella and his guitar could learn from the blues. Might be good to sit in tonight. Nothing else doing, after all. It was right about then that he noticed her, keeping pace with him on the crowded walk, a careful arm's length away. Andy stopped. The girl stopped, too, and turned to face him. Her big eyes were bright under the brim of the perky little hat, bright and hard as glass. He could see her shivering, which was no surprise. September it might be, and mild yet, but they were still on the main coast, and the wind off the ocean wanted a shawl or a jacket to turn it. Best you go inside, he told her, gentle, because it took some that way, those who really heard the music, and they got confused about what it was they wanted. I've got nothing for you, missy. But you do. Her voice was husky, and it shivered, too. Have something for me. Well, maybe he'd misjudged. He looked at her dress, the pearls, and the earrings, expensive things by his reckoning. You want money, he asked. Money, she repeated blankly, then swept her hand out as if tossing the word or a coin away. I don't care about money. Right, then. You go on back to your room, wherever you're staying. Her hard, brilliant eyes widened, and she lunged, catching his sleeve. No, she said sharply, and then, more moderately, No, I can't go back there. Please, please walk with me, just down to the trolley stop. They were blocking the sidewalk, or should have been. People flowed past without seeing them, no smallest shift of the eyes to acknowledge their presence. That was right. Most folk didn't see him unless he wanted them to, which he didn't right at present, and they'd automatically look away from a girl who was talking to herself. Still, seemed the best thing to do was ease off the don't see me and get her out of the way before some drunk trampled her or a fellow with an eye to opportunity decided she was too crazy to know what was happening to her. Sure, he said. I'll walk you down. Best step it up. Last trolley for Portland leaves at midnight. I know, she said, and thanks. He waited for her to let go his sleeve, but she didn't. Just stood there, looking at him, shivering in the breeze. Or maybe, he thought suddenly, not only with the breeze. Where's your fella? he asked her. She blinked. Gone drinking with Percy. I told him I was tired and wanted to go back to the hotel to sleep. He nodded, and when she didn't move or let go of him, he turned and started walking again down the hill. She went with him, drawing closer and slipping her hand into the crook of his arm like they were walking out together. 
That hurt that did, and he almost pulled himself free of her. You can, can't you? she said, breathless and shaky, before he could pull away. You can fix things. He felt a thrill, a stronger repeat of the sensation he'd had earlier, that there was something special about to happen. He'd seen that the girl heard the music, that she'd also been able to puzzle out the music's purpose. Well, there were those who could see the weird and understand the strange, even though they themselves were neither. Her question wanted answering, though, and he had to be careful with it. I can't fix anything, he said, and felt the sour truth in his belly. Not you, maybe, she said, talking fast now, her words tumbling over each other like puppies. The guitar, the music, that's it, isn't it? I felt it back there in the bar. I felt it begin to, to stitch me together. Her laugh was even less steady than her voice. Stitch me together, that was it, like a kid's rag doll. Look, Missy, he said, whatever you want, I want you, the music, I want to be fixed. It, the music, it can do that, can't it? She'd found the twist, bless the girl. He couldn't fix one blessed thing, true enough, but the music, that was something else. Careful again, he said, it can't fix, not the way you're thinking it can't. He hesitated and threw her a glance. That was a mistake. Her face was rosy, her eyes on fire. The bright red mouth pinched until it was hardly pink. What's the trouble, he asked. The words are drawn unwilling out of him, one by one. I just want to get away, that's all, she said, her fingers digging into his arm like a vice. But he has the stuff, and he... I, if I don't have it, I'll die. He knew then why her eyes were so bright and why she shivered so. Your fella gives you dope, he asked. She nodded jerkily. It was swell at first, you know, but it didn't stay swell. I'm sick of it, and I'm sick without it. That's how it goes with the dope, Andy said, and it was pity he felt for her knowing now why she was so thin. Nothing to fix it that I ever heard. If I can get away, the girl said, go up to Portland. I got, I got an old school chum in Portland. She'll help me. Then you don't need me, he said. Last trolley to Portland's at midnight. I know that, don't I? Or why did I ask you to walk me to the stop? You said you wanted to be fixed, he reminded her. Fixed. I need, I need to stay strong enough to not go back, to get on that trolley and get to Sarah. It wouldn't do her any good and might hurt Sarah too, depending on how deep the dope had a grip. Not his problem, he told himself. He had nothing to do with folks from away. He sighed lightly and put his hand over her fingers that were leaving bruises on his arm. I'll wait with you, he told her and I'll maybe play some while we wait. Hope flared in those two bright eyes. Thank no, now hear me out. There's no fixing involved. Music might put a little courage in you, maybe. Maybe. And not so much as that. When she crossed out of Archer's Beach, 
Well, he didn't know what happened to the music's power outside of Archer's Beach, now did he? Courage enough to hold you on the trolley, he said, not promising it, not exactly. So you'll sit tight all the way into the city, get a taxi to your friend. Understand me? He paused, thinking how best to tell her that distance wasn't what she needed, that she was carrying her doom inside her. She was sick, he recalled her saying. Well, then, she knew as much as he did. Sylvia, she said, shaking him out of his thoughts. He looked down into her face again. What? Sylvia, it's my name. He felt it strike him, solid, like a fist against the heart, and almost swore. Damn it, he hadn't asked for her name. Asked or not, he had it now, and everything that went with it. He sighed. Dangerous thing to be giving your name out to anybody, he said, mild, like it made no difference. You're not anybody, she answered, a breath, and she added, You don't have to tell me yours. Damn right he didn't have to tell her his. Cross here, is what he said, and took them across Archer Avenue to Milliken. Trolley stops on Grand, Sylvia objected. Stops on Milliken first, and it's quieter there. You want the music to concentrate on you, right? She nodded jerkily. Right. The town council had planted fewer street lights on Milliken, it being a secondary way. There was plenty of spill off of Archer's Avenue, though, and a lamp post right next to the trolley stop, its light furry in the sea-damp air. Andy settled into the corner of the little wooden bench and slipped the guitar out of its case. He could feel the music buzzing in his fingers, buzzing in his head. It came on like that sometimes, especially if he hadn't played in a while. After a night of moving music through him, it worried him a little, just while he was getting the case out of the way and settling his fingers along the strings. It worried him that the music was so eager, almost like it had a plan. It ought to worry him that the music had a plan, but once he had his fingers on the frets, nothing worried him at all. Sit on down, he murmured. We got a couple minutes. I don't want to sit down, she snapped, and he might have snapped back, but there wasn't any sense to it. It was the dope making her twitchy and mad. Suit yourself. His fingers were already moving, teasing out a melody. Simple gifts, it was. Good music, that one. Gentle powerful. What it felt like playing the music, the kind and style of music he played, it felt like, it felt like he went all still at the dead center of him while light filled him up, flowing out through his fingers to wash away the pain and sadness around him. That was why he'd stopped playing after Nessa married her prince and took herself off to the land of flowers. He'd told her that he was happy so long as she was happy but that had been a lie. The truth was, it felt like his heart had been torn out, and there was no still place inside him for the light to fill up. He'd gone back to his land, threw himself into its care and keeping, not thinking, only serving. Until the night he found himself standing on the corner of Milliken and Archer, hat on the ground by his feet, his fingers bleeding from the strings, playing, playing. That had hurt, the music melting the scar tissue, growing him a new heart, 
It had hurt for a long time, but he learned. He learned to let the music, what the music was and everything that it did, fill him up and flow away. It was his gift, his gift to give away. It was rare that he played just for one person. The full power of the music focused on a single heart and soul. Not many could bear that. When he'd been young and learning his gift, he'd broken a man's heart, playing just to him. His fault. He hadn't known the limits of a human heart then. Still didn't, though he had a far shrewder notion. He learned to play for big groups. He'd learned to give the music away to the street, to a meadow, to the sea, and to those strong enough to bear it. This girl now, this Sylvia, she was only human, weird-sighted though she seemed. Whole and healthy, she wasn't strong enough to bear the full brunt of the music. Sick with dope like she was and dying, the best thing the music could do to fix her like she wanted was to kill her outright and stop her from hurting any more. His fingers moved along the frets without him paying any particular mind, and it was Shenandoah this time, easing into the space that had been warmed by simple gifts. Andy looked up, wanting to see how she was bearing it, but what he saw was the music swirling round and through her, lighting her up like she was a candle. A funny kind of candle with the flame guttering and a space of blackness before there was light again, burning brilliant and brave. He watched, his fingers moving up and down the strings. He watched the music coil around the brilliant base of the candle and tighten. The light moved up, slow, like the dark patch was almost too heavy to budge. The music tightened again. He found his fingers insistent, and it was some Spanish thing now that he'd learned from that sailor long winters ago. Flamenco, thrumming hard and insistent, exerting pressure until the white base of the candle flowed up into the darkness and the crowning flame flared bright blue-white. The bottom half of the candle, that was dark now, and Andy's fingers slowed, sliding out of insistence into a gentle murmur, not music, really, more like whistling to yourself when you'd just done something that scared you bad. The music flowed away. The image of the candle faded, and it was just the girl, Sylvia, standing there and staring at him, her face a little pale now, and her eyes soft with tears. You fixed me, she whispered. I felt... You felt, he said, his voice a harsh counterpoint to the murmur of the music. You felt half your life taken off the back end and applied to the front. You won't die this week, missy but you won't live out the length you was given. Her mouth tightened, the lipstick long gone, and then she nodded once, firmly enough that the brave red flower on her hat jerked with it. But I was going to die this week, wasn't I? Can't say that, Missy, but you were in a bad way. Then I'll take that shorter span, she said firmly, and stiffened her thin shoulders. What are you going to do then? Like I said, go to Portland, find Sarah, figure out what to do with what I've got left. A bell sounded around a crackle of electricity. Sylvia looked over her shoulder. The trolley's here, she said, but instead of moving toward the curb, she stepped up to the bench, 
leaned down and kissed his cheek. Thank you, she said. I mean that. She turned then, took a step, turned back to look at him, a wry grin on her pale face. I don't have car fare. He snorted lightly and came to his feet, one hand still fondling the strings while he dug into his pocket and pulled out his evening's earnings. Here. That's too much. Taxi ride to Sarah once you're in Portland, he said. Something to eat, maybe. He pushed the money at her. I'll get more tomorrow. She laughed. He talked me into it. The trolley arrived with a clang of the bell. The door clattered open. Millican Street, the conductor yelled. All aboard for Portland, Congress Street car barn. A fellow came down the stairs, none too steady on his feet, tipped his hat in Sylvia's general direction, miss, and charted an uncertain route down Millican, taking the corner wide at Imperial and heading up the hill toward the boarding houses. Sylvia mounted one step and stopped to look over her shoulder at him. Come with me, she said. He shook his head, both hands on the strings, and the music moving softly out into the night. Got everything I need right here. Lucky you, she said. Hey! Andy turned, fearing the worst, and here it came, the fellow she'd been with at the conch, hatless and running. Sylvia, hey, hold that trolley! She froze. She half turned. Jake? Andy brought his hand across the strings in a slash, waking discord. Go, he shouted, and used what she'd freely given him against her. Sylvia, get on the trolley. Her body stiffened. Wooden, but obedient to his command, she mounted the steps. The doors clashed shut behind her. Electricity crackled. Sparks danced along the wire. Hey! The fella, Jake slammed to a stop by the bench, breathing hard and shaking his fist at the trolley's backside. Evening, Jake, Andy said, quiet and firm. The man turned toward him, eyes widening. You! What did you do with my girl? Gave her some help. She asked me. Yeah? Well, you're going to be sorry you did that. How about I break that guitar over your head? No, Andy said, and heard the music coming out of the guitar, thick and dark and heavy. He tried to stop, but the music had him as much as it had Jake, and the music was angry. You better leave, he told Jake, and tried to change it, to play something else. He thought the notes of simple gifts, but his fingers continued to call forth darkness and doom. The strings were icy against his skin, and he saw the music flow into the man and through him saw the candle, saw, Andy thought, the man's soul, dull and tarnished thing that it was with its flame guttering orange. His fingers were pitiless. They played on, and the dark music swept out in an eddy so poisonously perfect that Andy felt the tears prick his eyes. There was no filling here, no squeezing either, just a breeze, that was all, cold and soft and sudden. The candle flame flickered, guttered, and licked back up, just a glow now. Andy drew a breath. He drew deep when all the power he had in him. He lifted his hand away from the strings. The music stopped.
The man's guttering soul flickered in the passing of the cold breeze. Jake swayed, then straightened as the flame steadied and flared. You, he snarled again, taking a step forward. Andy slashed his hand across the strings, making them scream. Run, he shouted. Jake, you better run away and forget you knew Sylvia. He felt that last bit take, just before Jake jumped up like he'd been poked with a hot wire. A harsh gasp, near enough to a scream, got loose from him, and his slick-soled shoes scraped the sidewalk as he sprang into a run, up Millican, back toward the lights of Archer's Avenue. Andy watched until Jake was just one more silhouette among the many up on the avenue. Then he walked over to the bench and put his guitar away in its case. He stood for a little while then, shivering, the breeze off the ocean having gone from chilly to cold. "'Shows what comes of dealing with folks from away,' he said to nobody in particular. He sighed and slung the case over his shoulder, looking toward home. Midnight, he thought. The big band would be finishing up its last set real soon, and the jam session would be warming up. He wanted voices around him, and music, that was what. Tonight now, he thought, moving slow toward Archer Avenue. Tonight, he'd learn to play the blues. This has been The Gift of Music by Sharon Lee. Read for you by Gray Reinhardt. Thank you, Gray. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Gray Reinhardt, Laura Haywood Corey, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And Lodge Cheers and a gaggle of Blade Runner replicants come down to earth to show their gratitude by mixing his paints to Bane artist extraordinaire Dave Seeley. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars 